You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. What's up, guys? Eric Kahn here, Hard Men Podcast host. Excited to be with you in this episode. It's about to be a new year. Today is actually New Year's Eve. And I am back at the helm of this content-producing machine, and I'm happy to be sharing new content, exciting stuff coming in the new year. It was a big fall, lots of work, lots of stuff going on in the content-producing world outside of this podcast. We're in transition mode going into 2022, and one of my big focuses is going to be the Hard Man podcast. So we have a lot of exciting content coming down the turnpike. Some of the things included this episode, It's Good to Be a Man, book review. I'm excited to be doing that in this episode. Next week, Lord willing, I'm going to be interviewing Sean McGowan. He's got a book on the imprecatory Psalms. So we're going to be talking with Sean. That show is going to be amazing. When you get into the imprecatory Psalms, you start to get into the topics that people in the politically correct movement today absolutely hate. And um, it is a good manly thing to pray imprecatorily and to know how and when to do that. So we're going to be talking to Sean about that in his new book. And again, big plans for 2022. So I want to jump now into this episode. I'm going to be reviewing Michael Foster and Nantena's book, It's Good to Be a Man. It's Good to Be a Man just came out. Uh, Of course, I had an advanced copy via PDF thanks to Michael. So I've actually read this book twice. Um, the hardcover book published by Canon Press is a really beautiful book. It's a hardcover with no dust jacket. I wasn't sure if I was going to like that, but I love it. It's absolutely amazing. When I, when I get a hardcover book, the first thing I do is I, I take the dust jacket and I immediately get rid of it. So Canon saved us that step. The book is 227 pages in length. Again, really well made, red cover. You got some camo on the inside of the covers as well. Looks really cool. You can, of course, buy the book direct from Canon Press, or you can get it as well on Amazon. Again, I ordered my copy through Canon Press, part of the, well, it was a bundle. You know, we had the uh, Chris Wiley book on Lord of the Rings, Gashmu Saith It from Doug Wilson, and... Uh, Of course, It's Good to Be a Man. The other two books haven't come yet, but in time for Christmas, we did get It's Good to Be a Man, so very exciting. If you follow on social media, Canon Press, Michael Foster, It's Good to Be a Man, really everywhere you look on social media, it seems like these days you're seeing pictures, comments, quotes, etc. from It's Good to Be a Man. I was one of those people pushing the book. They've definitely got the marketing machine pumping. It's running on all cylinders for Canon Press on this book. I really think this book has the potential to be one of their most uh, sold copies, I would think, um, based on what I've seen so far. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, uh, whether or not it's their most successful book. You would think so. Uh, Michael has a huge following. Michael has been doing really tremendous work throughout the year. I was talking to Michael a few weeks ago, and um, well, actually it was last week. And I was absolutely blown away with how busy, if you follow Michael on social media, you'll see how busy he's been. He started a church 
East River Church in Batavia, Ohio. Congrats to Michael. The church is growing. The Lord is doing a lot of good things. It's kind of interesting because I know Michael's backstory. We kind of go at least a few years back, uh, part of the same church movement together. Michael and his family have been through a lot. And one of the things I've admired about Michael is how much he's endured that, like a man. Like, you know, we talk about all these Twitter manliness gurus, and in their own life, they're just losers. And, um, you know, their wives are cheating on them or whatever. You know, it's, it's all on paper. But I think one of the cool things for me is, you know, knowing Michael, it's not on paper only. Michael is legit. He's the real deal. They built a church. He's been married for 18 years to Emily. Right now they published a book, It's Good to Be a Man. It's really a, a kind of a huge fruit of the work they've been doing for a long time. I was looking on Twitter. Michael said, you know, this year they bought a house. Again, they planted the church. They've installed three elders. They've received their first church members. Again, Michael had a busy, busy fall. He was part of the 21 convention. He, he did interviews, I think, for Daily Wire, like Man Rampant, Breitbart. He was all over the place. Right, They've been uh, working on new content, new books, all sorts of things. So again, huge encouragement. I think to, to guys, just the example of Michael, like it's about plotting and being productive in the Doug Wilson sense of the word. Right, They didn't get to this point overnight, and um, it's really cool to see God blessing a really faithful brother. So I'm grateful for Michael and none as well. I know none less well. Uh, because he's not in America, so I don't get to see him as much. We talked a few times. Love uh, his contribution to the project as well over the years. It's been phenomenal. But again, the book is named after the ministry that Michael and Nan started. It's good to be a man. I was around uh, following that kind of, I think, from its inception. It's slowly grown over the years, and they've churned out tons of great content. Again, if you've been following them, you can still do that, by the way, through their newsletter. Their podcast, they've got a men's group called Tyrannus Hall. I think that they're still doing that. Again, some of my articles have been featured on their website. They were kind enough to feature them there. Uh, one of those, I believe, was an article on getting your household in order. Again, that's on my website and theirs. So a lot of overlap content, a lot of things that we've bounced ideas off each other over the years. I've benefited deeply and tremendously from Michael, from Nan, all the work that they've done. It really is, when you think about it, it's hard to quantify the impact that Michael and Nunn have had on certain Reformed Christian camps, right? certain parts of the manosphere, and really the broader Christian sphere in general. Like, where would we be without their content? It's amazing how impactful uh, they've been. You know, of course, Michael now involved uh, through the book with Canon Press, you know, he's, he's had talks and stuff with Doug Wilson. All that good stuff is going on as well. His reach is extending. Really cool to see. Um, it's good to be a man. Has really done an important and powerful work. And I would say reviving and mainstreaming concepts like biblical masculinity. right? Concepts like patriarchy, gravitas, uh, robust households. Right, M Michael is sort of like this genius and he's able to take these things and, and to turn them into mainstream. So that we're talking about them in the mainstream. Now, I realize it's not the Gospel Coalition mainstream yet, but I think a lot more people today than a few years ago are talking about these issues. And it's a large part thanks to the work that he's doing at It's Good to Be a Man. Right, prior to them, 
I think that there was precious little content about masculinity coming out of Christian camps in general. This is something that I've covered on on my website as well. You know, why the Christian publishing industry is at war with men, right? Even the books that we're reading for men are really marketed to women so that they can give to their husbands who don't actually want to read them, right? It's been such a blessing, I think, with It's Good to Be Man to have content that is biblical, theological, robust, and the content that men would actually want to digest. And so myself included, I would say there was a lot of us who are just extremely grateful that this content exists. Now, as I said, as a a personal level, I've been friends with Michael for several years now, and I've benefited deeply, 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 deeply from his content, his friendship, uh, phone calls, insights that Michael has shared, and really his continual encouragement. I think that's really the biggest thing for me. Michael is such an encouragement to, to myself and to so many others. The Hard Men podcast, everything that I've done simply would not exist if it had not been Michael. It was, it was Michael Foster who was pressing me to keep creating content on masculinity, right? I wrote a few things and I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. And Michael's like, no, man, you know, you need to lean into this. You need to, here's how you can produce some of the content. Here's some of the things you should be doing. Why don't you start a podcast? He was really pivotal in that whole process helping me think through masculinity and certain issues, but then specifically as well, how to pump content out through Twitter. That was really Michael's baby. You know, I never used to be on Twitter. I think at the time Michael and I talked, I had like 300 followers. Um, And I, I just, I wasn't using it. And if I was, I wasn't using it well, right? And then Michael was like, hey man, here's how you can use Twitter. Not only listen, grow your platform, grow your reach, whatever, but his whole thing was connect with other believers who are like-minded. It'll be a source of encouragement. Call them on the phone. Get to know these brothers, right? And really because of that, I met Dan and Brian at Refuge. We've built a relationship over the last couple of years. Again, I, I, I can't overestimate how beneficial Michael has been to me just as a friend to encourage along the way, to share vital insights about all these different platforms, how to network with other men, Again, quite literally, it has changed my life, and I love it. So I'm deeply encouraged, as I said, to see Michael, East River Church, take off in Batavia, to see Michael's reach of his ministry be expanding. I really would say that Michael, from, from knowing him the last couple of years, he's one of the sharpest, albeit lesser known. I don't think he'll stay that way. But he's one of the sharpest minds in Reformed Christendom that most people don't know about. And I say most people, like in our spheres, yes, a lot of people are getting to know him. But um, I think more people need to get to know him. Uh, He is a gift and a treasure for the church. And so, again, just very grateful. I think especially when you think about what they talk about in the book, we'll unpack more of this, but clueless bastards, you know, men who grew up without fathers, or even if they had fathers, just not a strong fatherly presence, right? That's where Michael and It's Good to Be a Man and Non and their content has been so helpful in in helping us think through how do we live out a biblically faithful gendered piety as men, right? We didn't have wise guides, many of us. And so how can we start and how do we not just live as victims with self-pity, but actually, you know, build something robust? How do we do that? And they're going to show us, and we'll talk more about that as we delve into the review of the book. 
again, it's so rare. I'm just reflecting on Michael. It's so rare that you have an individual who possesses this kind of combination of, I don't know what you call it, just incredible vision, energy, wise insight. Um, he reminds me kind of of the men of Isaacar, like he really understands the moment. It, it was Michael, like the very beginning of COVID. I remember him telling me, listen, dude, this is going to change our culture. This is going to be monumental. And I'll never forget this. You know, I, 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 in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be a disaster because that's, you know, I'm cynical. That's where my mind goes to. And Michael told me, he said, brother, listen to me. This is going to be an enormous opportunity and you need to be prepared to capitalize on it. Again, what a blessing to have men in your life who just tell you like, man, you need to be prepared. You need to be working hard. See the blessing, the opportunity for what it is. Right. Sort of like Elijah when uh, his servant is freaked out because the enemies are around him. And he says, you know, God, open, open his eyes. His eyes are open. And he sees the army of the Lord is surrounding them. What do they have to be afraid of? Nothing. Opportunity in what looks like disaster. Right. We need more of that. So a couple other things I want to share before we jump into the review, just by way of example from Michael, things that I've learned, been able to practice. Um, and I think if, if we were able to put them into practice as a church, we would all be better for it. So number one, Michael was one of the first people, I think, in, in, at least for me, to recognize something that I was doing well, like some of my writing, some of the things that I was, I was sharing. He reached out to me, he celebrated it, and he helped me find my way into a more consistent quality content stream and better networking strategy. Right. So he just contacted me and was like, Hey, you're doing great work, but here's some things to do. Here's how you can grow up, be encouraged, press on. Right. What an encouragement. I'm sure that other people had helped him along the way. Maybe that's his way of passing it on. I don't know. But I think he also realized that if you can help other men carve out this niche and be faithful and, and build up other men, like there's space for all of us. It's sort of the, you know, the rising tide lifts all ships type mentality. Right, but it's inspired me to help find other people who are doing good work, encourage them, help other people to utilize and employ their gifts for the good of Christ's church, right? So what a lesson from Michael. Celebrate others, figure out who's doing good work and encourage them in it. Number two, and, and it's really related to this, Michael has continually stressed to me in our conversations his principled conviction that the culture war will be won when many good men right? Many good men in many places are raised up to do the good work. Like what we need to get away from is this notion that I'm the only one that's doing important work. I'm the only one that people can love and praise and help push the ball forward, right? The reality is the more men pushing the ball forward on issues like masculinity and sexuality, the better it is going to be for all of us. We can partner and we can help each other where possible and we do not need to compete in a cutthroat style turf war, right? That's not what is going to win the day and change the culture. There is no place at this moment for sectarian party spirit that sees only one man or ministry as having a corner on the market, right? So it's our natural tendency, part of it is envy, but it is our natural tendency to think that we can be the only game in town. Right? We see this in Jesus' disciples as well. They acted the same way. Jesus, there's other people preaching. Tell them to stop. And Jesus is like, no. 
even Jesus. We're not the only game in town. If somebody else is preaching the gospel, then praise God. And may the work of the kingdom be furthered through them. Right? What we so desperately need, I think, in this moment, not only among the church and pastors, but among like content creators, people starting businesses, right? We desperately need a unity of mind and mission in the church if we're going to start seeing genuine cultural transformation, right? Unfortunately, what's the reality in our culture today? Many prominent figures on social media and in the church, they act like there's only room enough for one big dog at the top. And guess what? It's usually them, right? We live in this celebrity culture. It's just like what Paul was facing. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. We've all got our pet celebrity figure. Maybe it's in the manosphere. Maybe it's weightlifting. Maybe it's a pastor, whatever it is, your favorite preacher, right? This is part of the problem with the ethos of the celebrity evangelical world we live and breathe in, right? As many of us witness firsthand, you know, I was part of Acts 29 for a little bit, did some church planning with them, got to see these things through personal experience. I've also, like many of you, listened to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. But if you've experienced any of this, you know that our generation has grown up with this caricature of the magnanimous, energetic celebrity pastor, right? That's what we grew up with. That's what we're used to. Rick Warren, Mark Driscoll, John Piper, like that type of just enormous conference speaker type person. But what has happened to a lot of these guys, right? It's like in mass, they have defected to the enemy's camp. Or they've almost entirely destroyed themselves, their ministries, their families, whatever. Right? It doesn't seem to have worked out. We grew up in the young, restless, and reformed movement. And how many of these guys are left standing? Not very many. It's really sad. Right? Entire ministries rotated around the gravitational pull of a single man, a single personality, a single preacher. And when that single preacher melted down or blew up, Right, he brought down the entire movement with him. Right, we mentioned some of them, but think of them: Mark Driscoll, James McDonald, Joshua Harris, C.J. Mahaney. I will put Ron Burns on that list. Total absolute train wreck. People that I heard preach in chapel at Southern Seminary. I would include in that list Ray Ortland. The dude has jumped the shark. Right, let's stop using words in 2022 like should. Oh, those are so mean. I mean, the Bible uses them everywhere, and we're commanded all the time by everybody to should. You should do this. In the name of Christ, I command you. Yeah, but we're not going to do that, right? These guys have jumped the shark. So maybe, just maybe, we need to rethink this model. It's not that we don't need good teachers in the church. And sure, these teachers are going to have books, and they're going to speak at conferences. That's fine. Michael puts it this way. And I like it. We need an Avengers-style cultural campaign, not a one-man army, right? It's fine if there's a lot of us with vastly different talents, all working on the same mission, sort of like the Avengers, right? We're not all just one Superman. It's not just one man, Batman. He does everything, right? But again, it's the Avengers. There's room for all of us. There's normal pastors and fathers and men who are doing meaningful local work that when it is stacked together, it adds up to lasting change for future generations of faithful men and women. We do not need to be threatened by other competent, courageous men. In fact, this is incredibly effeminate if we are. 
Instead, we should help each other. We should be celebrating each other's success. Right? This is particularly true for people in our realm who are doing Christian media. But it's also true for pastors. It's true for, again, men who are starting woodworking businesses. It's true for men in any sphere. Right? You have to fight and put to death envy. And one way you can do that is by celebrating other people's success. We should be promoting other men who are doing it well. Again, a valuable lesson I've learned from Michael, which is one reason I'm excited to do this show and to do this review, because I get to celebrate what another faithful set of brothers has put together. And I know how much work they put into this book. And so I want to uh, jump into the review. And uh, as we do that, by the way, I just want to I want to start by asking and answering with this question. Why is this book so important? So I'm going to lay out a few things why I think it's important, and then I'm really going to dig into the review and just really look at some of the most important things that this book addresses. So number one, why is this book so important? Why is this book an incredible gift to the church? Well, I think number one, this book just comes at the right moment, right? For many decades, I would say that men have languished in an effeminate church culture, in a feminist society, right? This is probably, it's going on for a century, but I think the battle, the heat of the boiling pot has been turned up in the last couple decades, last couple years. But men in general have been suffering and we've not really understood why. So you read, it's good to be a man. And look, I saw these things happening in the 90s, the early 2000s, but until this book came along, I didn't know how to put a name or to describe it. And many men, I think, are going to be in that same boat. You read this book and you'll be like, boom, it makes sense. It's going to be like a red pill experience. Right? The church, meanwhile, has not really provided us with meaningful answers about what's going on. And again, as I said, the Christian content in media, like what did we have for so many years? We had the Gospel Coalition, right? That's the best that we have. Like they're the ones pushing complementarianism, pushing soft feminism, egalitarian, different different forms of egalitarian theology. So clearly they're not going to be the ones who are giving us the red pill about why our church culture is so effeminate, right? As I've written about before, again, publishing industries inside or adjacent to Christendom are ruled by the opinions of feminist women and effeminate men. At best, think about the best things that we've had as men in the last couple of decades. We think about Wild at Heart. Okay, I've reviewed that show. Definitely encourage you to check that out. There's some good things in that book, right? John Eldridge definitely picks up on some of the things that are definitely wrong in Christianity, but he didn't have a lot of really good answers. And I think if you you read It's Good to Be a Man and then you read like John Eldridge, you'll be like, okay, a vast difference here. You know, It's Good to Be a Man is theologically robust, reformed, et cetera. You don't have to put up with any of the charismatic nonsense. You don't have to put up with any of the, you know, God told me in a vision that I was gladiator. You don't have to put up with any of that. So there's less bones and none of the psychobabble, right? The therapeutic moral deism. What were some of the other good things that we had? You know, promise keepers. Okay. You know, Mark Driscoll, I think was right about this. Like going to it and be like, eh, it's kind of gay though. It's kind of like touchy feely, right? And again, not always the great theological standard there either for men who've experienced that. Again, while these things were not all bad, they're not exactly theologically rich and robust 
and many of them were not practically helpful, right? If, if all you wanted to do after Wild at Heart was apply that book, I think you would just spend the rest of your days like having conversations about daddy wounds. I don't know about you, but I want to take dominion. I don't want to focus forever on my daddy wound. Right? I want to go do something. I want to build something. I want to establish my household and, and grow in gravitas. Right? Weightiness as a man. Right? Wildly Heart didn't do that for me. Right? What it's good to be a man has done is provide solid food for the masculine soul. Like real, meaty, doctrinal, weighty, sound teaching. It's robust. It answers societal problems that have been plaguing men for at least a century. And again, as I said with Michael, he just gets the moment really well. You know, he, he's not, what did he tell me in our show? Like, he's not an early adopter, but he's at the forefront of kind of seeing what's going on culturally, like the men of Isaacar. So I think the book is just so tremendously helpful. Like, in some ways, guys, I've been waiting all my life for books like this. I said a very similar thing about masculine Christianity. And so what a blessing that God has preserved these truths for us. And uh, we get to read about them. And it's accessible. And again, praise God for Canon Press. They did a wonderful job on this book as well. So again, that was number one. Why is this book so important? Number two, number two reason I think it's so important is because it's highly practical, but also deeply theological. Right? Many men's books rely on milquetoast theology with you know, just an overabundance of sports analogies and tired, tired Christian platitudes that None of us really understands what they mean. You need to surrender all to Jesus, brother. And let me tell you about Bear Bryant. He's amazing. What? Like, we need more than that. And it's good to be a man is definitely more than that, so we praise God. Right? Again, no cycle babble, but it's good to be a man is richly theological. Again, we'll, we'll see in the book that they really start with God's creational design for men and for women, but mainly men here from the early chapters of Genesis, and then they spend time in the second half of the book, especially teaching you and showing you and exhorting you how you can make this highly practical feature of your life. Right? The book features a clear assessment of the problems facing men, but also with an optimistic and tangible path out of such a mess. So consider the book a practical theology lesson with a lot of fatherly exhortation. Here's the game plan. Here's how you find a mission. Here's why you need one. You can do this. Don't be a victim. Take responsibility. Again, be strong. Be courageous. You can do this. So third reason the book is so important is because Michael and Nan have made terms like household, gravitas, patriarchy, and dominion great again. Right? They do a masterful job of showing the glory and the necessity of older, more ancient concepts that once ruled the world but have since fallen out of fashion. Right, Patriarchy. I actually got into it with Reverend Kim before she blocked me on uh, Twitter. Reverend Kim, great follow on Twitter, let me tell you what. But I got into it with Reverend Kim because she was like, you are following the culture and the culture chases the idols of the day and the idol of the day is patriarchy. And I don't know if I said this to Kim, but I was like, "Are you?" I think I did. I was like, Kim, are you smoking something? Because, man, look around you, Reverend Kim. Oxymoron, Reverend Kim. Like, our culture is awash with feminism. People hate patriarchy. 
any and every time I bring up patriarchy, even in Christian circles, and especially in Christian circles, they hate that word and they hate even more the practice and teaching of it. Just comical. It's what you get when you're dealing with a Reverend Kim on Twitter. I'm not anymore. She blocked me. Sad day. So it's good to be a man is grounded in scripture, right? It shows us where these terms come from, why patriarchy is important, why it's inevitable, right? And they also show a lot of these terms, how they come from classical societies like Greek and Roman, in which these biblical principles were still honored, right? Maybe best of all, Michael and Nunn show us how we can, as men, gain gravitas in pretty practical ways, I think, how we can live as truly honorable patriarchs and lead a meaningful mission with the gifts and calling that God has placed on our lives. Fourth, why do I think this book is so important? Because it's good to be a man shows that patriarchy is inevitable, but good patriarchy is not. Right? So hear that again. Patriarchy is inevitable, but good patriarchy is not inevitable. These guys, Michael and Nan, do a good job of tracing patriarchy through the pages, the Old and New Testaments, through the stories of men like Absalom and Pharaoh and Cain and Abel and Abraham and Christ. But unlike so many today, they are not embarrassed about this hierarchical language of men ruling that you find really from the opening chapters of Genesis. Right? These guys are honest about the presence of genuine toxic sexuality because, yes, there are real abuses. But one of the ongoing things that I loved, the ongoing themes that I loved best about the book, right? one of the most powerful things I think that you'll take away from it as I did, is that really the most powerful things on planet Earth are the ones that the enemy loves to corrupt. And so the best and most powerful things, like your masculinity, your sexuality, are also the things that when turned and corrupted can become so devastating and ruinous to all of society. It doesn't mean that masculinity and sexuality are bad. It means they're powerful and the enemy knows it. Again, patriarchy is the same way. Of course, there are abuses, but we don't need to overqualify it. And we can celebrate it from the pages of scripture while giving men a clear path forward to follow the righteous patriarchal path. Now, fifth and finally, it's good to be a man is an incredibly wise and helpful tool for rebuilding in the cultural ruins that we now face. Right? This includes rebuilding a masculine hope for what they call clueless bastards, right? Men who grew up without fathers. It's neither pessimistic nor unrealistically positive, but the book is, I would say, realistically practical and therefore helpful. Right? Non and Michael address why men need a mission prior to marriage. They show you how to create a life of gravitas and what that means and how to tangibly start taking dominion in your own life in ways that will bring blessings to you and to your household. So again, some of the reasons I think it's so practically helpful, and what I want to do now is jump into the meat of my review for It's Good to Be a Man, and I want to do that by talking about some of the most important topics that are brought up in the book. Now again, before I do that, I will say up front, this is a highly readable book. I found it like it's not like dense theology that reads like the phone book, right? It's engaging, it's pithy, the style is easy to digest. You do not need to have an advanced seminary degree to understand what they're talking about. But I also found that I think the book would be very applicable to men at any stage in their masculine journey. 
I would happily give it to my 14-year-old or my 12-year-old. I would happily give it to someone for men's group. I would give it to pastors. I think it's fitting whether you're 17 or 71, right? I'm giving the book five out of five stars, and I would definitely highly recommend it to you. For pastors, I would encourage you to consider some of the subject matter as fuel for sermon series, uh, future Sunday school studies, that sort of thing. Definitely a good resource to have in your repertoire. Now, finally, I'll say that I have seen this subject matter be highly prized by women too. Oddly enough, somebody was asking me on Twitter the other day, oh, I bet your, you know, I bet your audience is like 100% men and men who already agree with you. I said, yeah, you'd actually be surprised. I have a lot of people who follow the show who say, man, I've listened to your show and I think I'm pretty effeminate and I need to repent. Praise God for that. And I tell them the same thing. Like, I'm not perfect. I'm repenting as well. And gosh, where I've been in the past is pretty darn effeminate, right? We're growing. Again, this is not about like, hey, you're perfect. But one of the things, again, that I've seen is that women really love this content matter as well. So it's not just people who've arrived. Like, we're not. Uh, But women love it too. Women love to read about what men should be. They, in many cases, uh, women have reached out to me and said, man, I am so grateful. Your book helped me appreciate the godly, manly man that my husband is. Praise God for that. Again, so I think it applies. I think wives would do well to read the book. I think you'd do well to give it to your daughters to help them understand like what should you be looking for in a husband, in a man? What should men be like that you're interested in? So we'll delve into the review. I'm not going to go over everything in the book. There's a lot, obviously. But I hope what I have to say whets your appetite. If you haven't already ordered a copy of It's Good to Be a Man, I hope you'll do that. Check it out for yourself. It's definitely a worthwhile read. So at this point, I'm going to break down the bulk of the review with some of my favorite concepts. One, again, that I have found most helpful from the book. So number one, the authors developed the concept of warring patriarchies. This is uh, pretty early on, chapter one. It begins by looking at how patriarchies from the beginning of scripture have been at war with each other, right? It's helpful for us to understand that even the pages of scripture from the very beginning, there's this hierarchical struggle between the seed, right? The men, the patriarchies, Cain and Abel, for example. And as the authors point out, the enemy has always recognized the power and the threat that masculine men pose to the regime, right? This is why Pharaoh, like Herod after him, sought to kill the male children. The authors write, quote, Pharaoh knew that the young men of Israel, unlike the women, were a threat to his reign. Why? Because all men are potential patriarchs. Men are designed for conquest and rule and their combined strength could be sufficient to break the chain of even a mighty dynasty like Egypt, end quote. Men today are part of the same long-standing cosmic battle. Young men in particular are a critical target for the enemy. The authors say again, quote, because God has made you, that is young men, to rule, they are a threat to existing rule, end quote. But how does the enemy specifically wage war against young men? As the authors point out, the enemy will try to do really one of three things. Number one, they'll try to harness young men. Number two, they'll try to pacify them. Or number three, they will try to destroy them. Like Absalom, many men today listen to disgruntled young men 
and they steal away their hearts, thus harnessing them for their own rebellious missions. This is often what's going on with figures like Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, or Rolo Tomasi. Other men are pacified through what we'll call a bread and circus tactic, including television, streaming services, video games, and an endless supply of pornography. Finally, some regimes in history have resorted to brute tactics of simply destroying men in places like gulags or campaigns like the one that Herod implemented in Jesus' day. So it's helpful to know all of this because men today are often unaware that they are in a cosmic battle, right? They don't know that they're a part of this epic battle that's happening. And they also don't know the tactics the enemy is employing to neutralize them as men. But as the authors point out, quote, whoever controls the men controls the culture, end quote. It's hard to be a man if you're in a battle and you don't even know it. Once we know what the battle and the strategy of the enemy is, we can be better prepared to steel ourselves for the fight that is before us. What does this mean, though, for the church? While the authors point out, quote, the church is in danger of losing another generation of men. We are in danger of prolonging our time in exile. And so we need Nehemiahs, who will lead men in the work of rebuilding, but they are few. End quote. While pagans are willing to listen to, advocate for, provide practical solutions for, and win the hearts of our young men, the church has been somewhat ignorant of the unique challenges facing men today. Some of it we just put our head in the sand, others, We rely on platitudes that worked 20, 30, or 40 years ago. Even further on the spectrum, there are groups like Christianity Today and the Gospel Coalition who seem to mimic the culture by openly making war on masculine virtues and concepts like patriarchy, gravitas, or dominion. In many cases, if we do not outrightly ignore our men within the Christian walls, we continue to provide tired platitudes and boring solutions for them that are simply unhelpful or outdated or both. Again, reading It's Good to Be a Man is a good first step for many people, many men especially, in understanding the plight of men in our day who are caught up in a feminist culture, a sexually perverted culture, and this figures then, the book does, to be a useful tool for those who want to reach men of this generation who also want to start rebuilding in the ruins of the culture. Now, the second great topic I want to address that I found in the book is this. It's that the authors show that God's sexual design for men is good, and it is located in Genesis, and it relates to taking dominion. Like the New Testament authors, Michael and Nunn focus on the early chapters of Genesis. In those chapters, we find a man at the top of a hierarchy. He was put there by God. And he was given rule over creation and this delegated authority from God. Man is made to exercise kingly rule over creation. Likewise, man's mission, which is dominion, is fueled by his fruit-bearing union with the woman. To be the productive ruler that God has appointed him to be over creation, man is given this wonderful, beautiful crown, a helper, the woman. He gives her his seed, and she in almost magical fashion, returns it to him in the form of a future dominion taker who will share in his mission and in his work through the household. Among other things, the authors point out that the aggressive instincts embedded in the masculine nature are not defects, 
Men are not, as Michael and Nan say, defective women. They write, quote, You yearn as a man to bend the world to your will because Adam was created to bend the world to his will, end quote. The same can be said of the man's sex drive, which is a powerful gift that pushes him toward marriage and in turn helps extend his divine mission. While aggression and sexuality can be corrupted, they were not originally bad and they're not meant to be called bad or shamed in men. Rather, they are to be redeemed, not destroyed, by the gospel. As the authors say, quote, God has precisely calibrated sex to produce households. End quote. Speaking of sex, the authors describe the myriad ways in which Satan corrupts sex and uses it to divide us. Quote, sex was meant to knit two people together and fill the world with more servants of Christ. Satan uses it to alienate people and fill the world with more slaves of lust. End quote. Embedded in the conversation of sex, the authors describe God's hierarchical design for marriage. As they say, quote, modern evangelicals are quick to defend the importance of God dividing things horizontally, right? Look at us. They say, we've, God has made all these unique little beautiful snowflakes, right? They, they're fine with the horizontal distinctions, but back to the quote now. But when it comes to acknowledging the significance of his vertical divisions, we are reluctant. Yet the authors are also clear that, quote, authority flows downward from God to Christ to man, to his wife. They go on to talk about what's going on between the sexes as a result of cultural forces like feminism. Quote, The gender war is not between the genders, it is on the genders. Gender itself is under siege. End quote. At this point, the conversation shifts to a major theme that the authors unpack in greater detail, and that is the theme of androgyny. They spend a few chapters on this. Foster and Tennant show quite ably that androgyny is a synonymous element with historically pagan religious cults and is even today part of the cult of pagan humanist worship. Androgyny, go figure. Why is the emphasis of God's sexual design for men so important? Well, when Christ sought to correct the error of the Pharisees regarding marriage and divorce, what did he do? He shifted focus back to God's purpose for marriage, which is found in Genesis. So again, Michael and Nunn do this in the book. And it's important because if we're going to be rebuilding, then this rebuilding is going to start by looking with new eyes at the original blueprint, the original intention of God. If we're going to redeem masculine nature in the 21st century, it will be because we've returned to God's telos, his purpose or his aim for the sexes. The authors do a solid job of unpacking this creational purpose, I think, in a way that is practically helpful and relevant for men today. Third, I think the book develops the principle really well that men need a mission before they need marriage, right? Mission before marriage. Chapter 12 was one of my favorite chapters, and it helps men understand the need for mission and how you can develop one. The authors write, quote, a mission is your best effort at wisely integrating your interests skills, and circumstances into a personal vision for exercising dominion over what God has given you, end quote. In turn, having a mission is what makes you attractive to the right kind of woman. She is not your mission, but is meant to join you on the mission. 
Likewise, the authors point out several ways we misunderstand mission. First, we tend to think our mission has to be super spiritual. In other words, we mistakenly suppose our mission must be about something like evangelizing unsuspecting mall goers or reaching the third world with short-term mission trips. Right? These are the only missions that really matter. We think if we're a really missionally focused man, well, then we need to be a pastor or at least help with church planning if we're really going to be a part of that important missional work. This is simply false, and we can see examples throughout Scripture. One, of course, is Adam. He isn't given strictly a quote-unquote spiritual, at least not in the way we would use it, a spiritual mission. His mission is for all of life, cultivation of the entire planet. Second, this is one of the uh, failures we have in regard to mission or the misconceptions we have. We often think our mission has to be defined in epic terms, right? We watch movies like Batman and Superman, whatever, John Wick. We think, well, man, if I'm going to have a mission, it's got to be like that, right? Sometimes it's stuff like starting massive corporations from our garage, living like Bruce Wayne, having a massive celebrity platform, whatever, This simply is not true. That's not what it means necessarily to have a mission. Again, Michael and Nan point this out. We all have limitations, and what we need to do is faithfully operate within them. And they say this, quote, Aspire to be as great within your portion or lot as you can be, but do not let foolish pride or unrealistic ambition blind you to the actual opportunities, limitations that God has placed before you, end quote. So in other words, you can have a mission and you can work nine to five in such a way that brings glory to God. Maybe you don't, maybe you start your own business, but I'm saying you can do the nine to five and glorify God. It can be incredibly boring to an outsider, but in the same way, you could still be establishing your household and never be famous, but yet still be a man on a very important mission. Now, third misconception is that missions don't come with detailed step-by-step directions. Instead, the authors encourage us to focus on principles and to continue to live with wisdom as we apply them in a dynamic real-world situation, right? As you develop and discover your skills inside the opportunity that God gives you and provides for you, then you can actively craft and pursue your mission. Again, it evolves and unfolds over time, but the wise application of principles remains true. Finally, the authors provide helpful questions that help us discern as men what our potential mission could be. You know, simple questions like these. What do you like to do? What are you good at? Where has God given you opportunity? Where are there areas where important work needs to be done? Where are there areas where other men aren't currently undertaking tasks? Where can I step in and be responsible and take action? What needs to be planned and envisioned? What needs to be built or supplied? What needs guarding and fighting for? What needs to be torn down or destroyed? Again, some really phenomenal questions to help you think through what is your mission in life and how can you be really clear and practical about pursuing it? So why is this emphasis on mission before marriage so important? Well, unfortunately, we live in an egalitarian society or at best, at the very best, some of us experience complementarian walls within our church. But in any case, Either way you slice it, most men are trained to see the woman as the mission. This was one of the critiques I had of complementarian theology. They still locate the woman as the mission, right? You're supposed to be a, knife, a nice guy 
right? And your husbandly chief duty in this sort of framework is to serve and please your wife. She is your mission. Your goal in life is to meet her emotional, romantic needs as she has defined them through the Hallmark Channel and Christmas specials, right? You're supposed to be hyper-attentive, thoughtful, and servile. The result of all of this, which is crazy, is that men are often passive, aimless, and they're like small, needy children within their marriages. Women, by the way, hate these types of marriages. I think it's one factor in why women are so so unhappy in their marriages, despite, look, you got what you want so much with feminism, and you're more unhappy than ever. I wonder why that is, because you're straying from God's plan, right? Women want a man on a mission. There's nothing sexier to a good godly woman than a man on a mission, and she wants to be called into that mission and join him in the work. That's in the opening chapters of Genesis. We are hardwired for this, right? Again, this is This is God's design for man to go on a mission, to take dominion, and to invite the woman into that mission, to be his helper. This is the sole dynamic in which men and women will thrive. And if we are to restore men, households, and cultures, then one of the primary things we have to do is help men understand and find their own particular mission. So again, I think it's huge. Super appreciative that Michael and Nan have done the work in this book of helping us think through that mission question. So I would just pose it to the readers, man, what's your mission? Can you write it down? Can you give me an elevator pitch about what is your mission? Can you, can you explain it to your wife? Would your wife know what your mission is? Would your children? What will it look like for a son to come out of your household? What will it mean to be a bearer of your last name? What will that mean? Right? I think if we can help men find a mission, this is going to strengthen male-female relationships. It's going to strengthen our households. And I think that the divine mandate of taking dominion for Christ is going to be expanded rapidly as we do this. It all starts with a man understanding and developing his mission. Fourth, the authors show men the importance of gravitas and how to develop it in their own lives. Simply put, gravitas is a man's substance or his weight. He's the kind of man who, because of his character and his workmanship, he, he leaves an impression. And it's something that other men in particular recognize, right? This is gravitas. Men recognize it in their peers. A man with weight commands respect and honor. So gravitas, the authors write, is, quote, the result of having settled into your Christian identity as a man. It is what happens when you become proficient at reflecting the glory you were made to reflect, end quote. So how can you develop gravitas? Well, the authors point to what they call a triad of masculine virtues. I found this very helpful. And they show us how we can develop these virtues. So the triad of virtues are wisdom, workmanship, and strength. Wisdom is, quote, your grasp of what is happening in your world and how to act accordingly. This means meditating on God's word and steeping yourself in God's own wisdom. So the more that you conform your mind to God's mind, which we have in the scriptures, the more that you do this, you can develop the skill of wisely ordering your world according to God's pattern. We need to think God's thoughts after him. We need to take that wisdom daily and apply it to our lives, and then we're going to grow like Solomon and being able to build a kingdom, right? So that's wisdom. Workmanship is, quote, your developed ability in the talents God has given you, the skills you need in order to exercise dominion, end quote. So what God desires more than genius is simply for you to work hard where he has placed you. 
right? Figure out where your skills are, hone them, and then have a blue collar lunch pail mentality and go to work. Workmanship, simply put, is the capacity for being useful, right? If you want to be a man with gravitas, you've got to be a useful man. And if you are a useful man, the other men in your community will know it. Third, strength is the final virtue the authors will highlight. It is the most stereotypical masculine virtue, and rightly so. The most helpful way to think about strength is, quote, the ability to do work while bearing weight, end quote. Likewise, the authors write, quote, strength penetrates and divides. It overcomes and shapes. It prevails and subdues. A woman who is strong like this is butch and unnatural. But a man who is not strong like this is gay and equally unnatural, end quote. It's my kind of plain speech right there, Michael Anand. Thank you very much. So why is gravitas such an important part of the discussion? Well, I first read about gravitas from Chris Wiley and his book on the household, also from Canon Press, but I think particularly here that the triad, having three virtues set out that we can really be working on as men, like we can grow and how we have gravitas, I think is really helpful, especially if you find yourself in the clueless bastard camp. Right? It's really helped me think through the ways that I can be practicing and as well teaching other men the certain how-to aspect of gravitas. Right, Since none of us, as I said earlier, are perfect, we each need to grow in our weightiness. I did not say waistlines. I said weightiness. And this is going to show you, the book does, how you can be doing that practically on an ongoing basis. Again, very helpful. So fifth and finally, the book, this is my final, final point. The book stresses the importance of men finding fraternity. Chapter 13 is the chapter that is going to deal with the necessity of fraternity. And it begins with a quote from one of my favorite authors, Anthony Esselin. The quote says this, quote, The rebuilding of culture is not going to happen without the reconstitution of brotherhoods. Yes and amen, Anthony Esselin. I appreciate you, brother. Likewise, a man, the author writes, quote, Needs both the right woman and the right man in his life. Together, they are the two rails that keep his train on the track. A tribe and a helpmeet will stabilize, direct, and magnify his mission. Wow, that is some amazing stuff. Again, if you're not sold on reading It's Good to Be a Man Yet, I don't know what's wrong with you. Right? Men need a shared mission that they can gather around. Right? When you have men who are gathered around a mission, they form bonds of intimacy that will exceed and excel the love of woman. Scripture says this. Jonathan, David, think of their story, their deep, deep intimacy, their deep intimacy that is non-homosexual. Hard to fathom in our age, but true biblically. Right beyond this, the authors show, Michael and Nandu, the practical benefits of a male only fraternity and the pitfalls of evil brotherhoods. Right? There are things like criminal gangs, and there is a reason that they're so appealing. And so we need to be on guard against those things as well for ourselves and for our sons. Again, why is brotherhood so important? Why is it such an important part of the discussion? Well, because left to themselves, men are weak and unchallenged. We're untested and we tend to stray from a missional mindset. Think about when you, if you've weightlifted by yourself, man, I weightlift my, my 14 year old son and I'm like, oh, he's watching me. Like I need to push harder. And then he sees me watching him. So he pushes harder. This is how men work. We, we chase in each other. We challenge each other. We push each other to get better. Iron sharpens iron. 
But this only works when you can find the right kind of men on the same unified mission. Again, something that is definitely worth pursuing. Well, that concludes our show and my thoughts on It's Good to Be a Man. Actually, I have a ton more. And you can ask me about them. I'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, But we're going to end the episode here. Really deeply appreciate all of you. Appreciate all of your support, our Patreon supporters. If you're not yet a Patreon or EricCon.com member, please sign up. You can support the work for as little as $5 a month. You can also pick up t-shirts and you can pick up pint glasses in the EricCon.com store. Definitely appreciate all of the support. Again, if you get a chance, go to iTunes, go to Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast, but especially on iTunes, do me a favor, subscribe to the show, give me five stars. It's such a beautiful, beautiful treat to get five stars from you listeners. I love it. And um, leave a review. It's very, very helpful. Helps us expand the reach of the show. By the way, I always love our reviews because there's generally two kinds of reviews. There's the five-star review and there's the one-star review. And honestly, I think some of the one-star reviews are my favorite because it kind of helps you know, like, hey, we're on the wrong track. Like, Reverend Kim hates me. Well, I don't want to be hated by Reverend Kim, but if you're a reverend and your name is Kim and you're a woman and you hate biblical truth, I actually don't want you to like what I'm putting out content-wise. Sorry. Sorry, Reverend Kim. Also not so. Again, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like a